Today's sermon text is from Acts, the second chapter, the 42nd through the 47th verse. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Blessed be the Lord. Uh, good morning, everybody, again. I'm so glad you're here. Um, as you may or may not know, we've been making some comments on our social media thread over the last couple of weeks that we have a big announcement that we're making today. And uh, I assume that's why some of you were here this morning. Maybe you wanted to hear that. Um, and the big announcement is as follows. I'm not going to beat around the bush. just going to tell you, as of February the 5th, we are going to have a permanent church home. February the 5th. Um, Um, the, the way this developed, uh, here's some pictures. That's where we're going to be worshiping, uh, February the 5th. Uh, that is a building formerly um, occupied by a church called Believing Church that has moved out, and we will be moving in on February the 5th. And um, there's a few more pictures that we have. If you guys haven't seen this, it's on the corner of Perkins Road and Poplar Avenue. Perkins and Poplar Avenue in East Memphis. And uh, as you can see, it's... Um, it's a wonderful location. It's a wonderful building. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about how this happened. Um, back in, when I took this church over about nine and a half years ago, if you can believe that, it's incredible to me, uh, about nine and a half years ago, uh, our church was in a really interesting place. Um, we were in a building on uh, Winchester Road, 8800 Winchester Road, which is now occupied and owned by Cumming Street Missionary Baptist Church. And um, at the time, we were in a ch church of transition. I had taken it over from my dad. The church went through a lot of transition at the time. And because of that, uh, we had a lot of people coming in the front door, a lot at the back door. And back then, a lot more were going out the back door. And, um, and so about that time, it left us in a place where uh, we had a hard time paying our bills. Uh, our monthly mortgage was astronomical for a church our size. It made sense a few years earlier, but it didn't make sense for what we were. And so uh, we had uh, this albatross of a $9 million building really on our backs, and we couldn't, we couldn't pay it. We couldn't pay for it. And so one thing led to another, and we, began, we launched a campaign called Project 210. Anybody remember Project 210 in here? And uh, it was a naive, idealistic, crazy campaign that within two years, God would pay off our building. Well, he did, just not in the way that we envisioned. And so, uh, again, my dad introduced me to a gentleman, Pastor Gary Faulkner, who was the pastor of uh, Cumming Street Missionary Baptist in Whitehaven. They were wanting to launch a campus in southeast Shelby County. And so we talked, and they decided they'd come in and pay a large portion of our monthly mortgage just to give us some breathing room. We moved... Uh, from the worship center 
into the gymnasium and went to a 9 a.m. service. Everything you do to grow a church, that was the wrong thing to do. But it was the only, it was the only choice that we had. And so God provided for us. There was a ram in the thicket. And so, uh, not that we killed Cumming Street. Anyway, it didn't mean it that way. So um, anyway, so uh, they came along. They began meeting in our worship center. They had the premium worship hour at 11 a.m. We went to 9 a.m. and uh, coexisted there for about a year. And then uh, we just weren't growing at the time and didn't have the finances. And we were still, with all the money that they were paying us each month, we were still uh, in a really, really bad place. And I remember that board meeting that we had, and I think it was November of 2010, when we all looked at each other and said, man, unless God does something, bankruptcy is a clear and present danger. And that was a, that was a tough meeting. And... Um, so Pastor Faulkner and I met after that. I let him know what was going on. And uh, long story short, within six months, I was traveling out to East Memphis to an office building to sign my name about 100 times. And uh, they bought all everything. I mean, our debt, uh, the building, everything. And then in God's provision, he allowed us, Pastor Faulkner and his staff, allowed us to continue to gather at 8800 Winchester Road uh, for about three months. And they didn't allow us to pay them anything. We tried to pay for utilities. They wouldn't let us pay for that. And so that allowed us for three months to save up enough money to buy all this wonderful equipment that you see on our stage, in our nurseries, in the information center, in the, hall, in the corridor, everything that we have, two huge trailers to transport the, all this equipment back and forth. It was a, a behemoth expense, but we needed it. And uh, it was about that time that Jeremy Horn and I were talking. We're like, man, where are we going to do Sunday morning service? We've got to get back to a good worship hour. And he said, man, why don't you look at Ridgeway Middle School? And I said, where's Ridgeway Middle School? And Quince Road. So we drove over and uh, uh, knocked on the doors, and nobody saw us and couldn't get in. And we just sort of dreamed for a while. And uh, went to uh, Memphis City Schools at the time and said, hey, can we rent Ridgeway Middle School? And at first, we were denied. And then I reached out to the principal and who has the last word, Mr. Williams, who's become a very good friend of ours. And uh, I shared our heart with them, our vision with them, that we didn't want to take away from Ridgeway, but we wanted to be a blessing here. And uh, five years, over five years later, we are still here today and uh, in a really, really good place. Um, you know, this stage equipment takes, what, 30, 45 minutes to take down? How long does it take to tear that stuff down? Something like that. He says a couple of minutes, so yeah, uh, somewhere between two and 45 minutes it takes to tear that down, and, um, uh, but we went, to, we went to Mr. Williams a couple of years ago and said, you know, is there any way we could leave this equipment just up on the stage? He said, sure. Okay, well, while we're asking, is there any way we can leave all of our equipment like in a classroom and not have to transfer it, transfer it back and forth to our storage in all the branch? And he said, sure, and this became an arrangement that was... Even though we still have a lot of wonderful volunteers that really break a sweat every morning and every afternoon setting up and tearing down, uh, it's not nearly the amount of work that it once required. And uh, we, we only have Mr. Williams' hospitality to thank for that. And uh, we're really grateful for him. Um, um, so we did. I've, he is aware of what's going on. I wanted to let him know before, uh, before he heard through the grapevine and and uh, just wanted to thank him and, and just uh, bless him. Uh, I know one of the first questions I get is, and I love that this is one of the first questions that I get, what about Ridgeway Middle School, Chris? And uh, 
I've committed to Mr. Williams, we're going to continue to be a sponsor to this school in the same way that we have been. The only difference is that we're just not going to be gathered here on Sunday mornings. That's the only difference. Uh, if he needs me to come in and address the staff and his faculty like I do a couple of times a year, I'm happy to do that. We're happy to pay for their mother and son uh, banquet that they put, put on every, every spring and all the other various activities that they do. We are happy to be here, and we're not in any way going to abandon these guys. We are their biggest sponsor, and we're going to remain that. Um, so that was our story from 8800 Winchester Road to uh, 60 whatever, 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 I think 6333 Quince Road. Um, but one of the things that we've realized over the last couple of years is that uh, this has been a wilderness time for us. Now, when I say wilderness time, a lot of times what comes to mind when we hear the word wilderness, if you've been raised in church, is something negative. The wilderness was not negative. God freed the children of Israel from their bondage, and yes, I know theologians that that's not a text about moving church buildings, but it's, it, helps to get into, it helps to get into our thinking about what's going on here. Um, uh, when God freed the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt, he brought them into the wilderness for the express purpose to worship him. Now, what we often lose and forget about is that the Israelites had been in bondage for four centuries. They had been deformed by Egyptian paganism. They had been dehumanized through heavy and hard slave labor. They were still the children of God, but they forgot who they were. And so God brought them into the wilderness to reshape them and reorient them to who he always intended them to be, his beloved children who would be the light of God to a world that was far from him. That was always God's plan with the children of Israel. We've all used the imagery of the wilderness in our lives, or many of us have. I can think of times in my life where I've been through a, quote, wilderness. And as I look back on that hard and testing time in my life, I can see how God was silently at work in my life, changing me and renewing me. Can anybody relate to a story like that? I think you can also apply the wilderness narrative to a body of believers. I really think you can. We've been through a wilderness. And the only reason that the wilderness takes on a negative, uh, a negative, negative imagery is because Israel remained hard in their hearts and rebellious towards God, and they had to remain there for an entire generation, for 40 years, so God could soften and tenderize their hearts. I don't think that's us. I really don't think it is. I think God has been tenderizing our hearts and has been reshaping us and changing us. And something beautiful has been taking place because I'll be honest with you, at the time I wasn't aware of this like I am now. Not only did, was our church going through a transition and we didn't know who we were as a church, but I didn't know who I was as a pastor. And it's hard to know what a win is if you don't know who you are. If you don't know who you are, you're going to grasp for everything that works. And you have to learn who you are in God, what a win looks like, what fruitfulness looks like for a church, for you, for me. We need to know what that is. And uh, while I'm a finite person, a sinner saved by grace, 
a beneficiary of God's great grace. I'm still finite and I'm still learning who I am. But one of the things that I've learned about me, one of the things that our staff has learned together, and one of the things that our church is learning about itself is this. And it, it's, an, it's an answer to a question that has uh, haunted me for years. In a city like ours with so many churches, what gives us a right to be a church? When there are, some people have estimated as many as 3,000 churches in this city. It seems incomprehensible to me. But in a, in a church, in a city with thousands of churches, what gives us a right to be a church? What justifies our existence as a church? Because I don't want to be a part of a church that just adds to the white noise of Memphis churchianity. I don't want to do that. That is not why Chris Bennett was breathed life by God. That's not why. And I don't think that's why you were given life by God. We want to be significant. We want to be used by God. We want to be a part of God, of what God is doing in the earth that is going to be eternal and is going to change lives and be a part of God's master plan of redemption, which is renewing the whole world. I want to be a part of that. I'm okay with being an ordinary piece in that. I don't have to be a superstar. I just want to know that what we're doing is significant in terms of God's master plan in redeeming all of creation. God's plan that he gave to Israel, that he gave to Jesus, that he gave to the church, that he's going to continue to unroll and unfurl until the great day when he returns. I want to be a part of that. And one of the things that I've learned about me and about us, the kind of church that we are, and there's a lot more to this, but this is what we really are. This is us. The us that we're going for, the us that we're totally committed to is this kind of us. A church that is a family. Now that word doesn't have the weight that it used to have. When you watch television commercials and they talk about, corporations talk about their family of products. When there's a family of restaurants, I get a gift card and I can go eat at Red Lobster and Bahama Breeze and Olive Garden and I'm part, I get to eat at the family of restaurants. That's not what I mean by family. What I'm talking about by family is the kind of community that is committed to enduring with one another and being the kind of family as diverse as we are that when you look at us that despite our brokenness despite our finiteness Jesus keeps us together and our family identity is a compelling story to a world around us that looks at the church and thinks the church is a joke I want to be a part of a Christian family that is going to be a family, where we talk through our struggles, where we face our brokenness, where we address our pain, where we validate one another in our hurt, where we walk with the, in the gospel together in order to make Jesus known to this city. I think if there's anything that undermines the gospel in this city, it's the fact that there are so many people who name the name of Jesus who just don't care. And I'll be honest with you, I've been one of those people. And sometimes I still am one of those people. There are days I care and days I don't care. And I'm fighting, I'm fighting that the gospel would be so powerful and profound in my life that every day I would wake up and I would care. 
And that's the kind of church that I want to lead. I want to care. I don't want to be constricted and uh, held back by the loves of this world. I don't want to be materialistic. I don't want to be greedy. I don't want my identity, even, a, even the slightest satisfaction to come from what hood ornament is on my car or how many square feet is in my house or how much money is in my bank account or how attractive my family is or how well-educated I am or my family is. I don't want my identity to be rooted in any of that stuff. But some of those things are good, some not so good. I want my identity to be rooted in a family that is committed to Jesus. I want to find satisfaction in the face of Jesus. I don't want Jesus to be a hobby for Chris Bennett. And I don't want Jesus to be a hobby for you. And I am relentless. I won't let that happen by God's grace. I won't. I can't. I can't look at myself in the mirror if that's the church that we are, where Jesus is a hobby. And so this is what we're becoming and so this leads us to why I think it's important that we move. For a few years, when we got here, it was, felt great. Expenses were really low, really low. <laughs> it felt awesome to go from paying a $68,000 a month mortgage to $4,200. felt really good. <laughs> it felt good to get a bonus for a couple of years. That was actually nice, too. Um, but we're comfortable. We're comfortable. We're plateaued. I'm not saying we're unhealthy. I'm not saying we're in decline. We're plateaued. Well, many of you have lamented to me of the feeling of impermanence that we have in our church. The feeling of being volatile. Unrooted. And what I don't hear you saying is, we really, 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 really need a building. What I hear you saying is something different most of the time. It would be nice just to have a place where you don't have to sit up and tear down for a Bible study. <laughs> it would be nice to have a place where you don't have to sit up and tear down to do mops, mothers of preschool ministry. It would be nice to have a place where we can do a vacation Bible school with our kids. I'm not saying all these things are going to happen. That's to be determined. It would be nice to have a place where we can worship in its home. And rather than trying to recruit people to, to break down stuff, we can drink a cup of coffee and enjoy one another, and there's no deadline to get out of the building. We can be together. We can be together. I want that too. I really want that too. But I also know that in Memphis, for many churches, the heart of a church is a building. And so I really fought with this. Every day for three or four years, the first three or four years we were here, my prayer was this, Lord, if you want us to have a building, then let it be done by your will. Because I just didn't have clarity. I didn't know. Lord, is that what you want us to have? Do you want that for us? I didn't have, quote, a word. <laughs> and I was honestly, in, in my brokenness and my fear, I was afraid to step out and just start saying it and declaring it. I didn't know. But about a year and a half ago to about a year ago, it became, it became very clear to me. We really need a place that we can call home. That would be fantastic. And I don't think there's anything unspiritual about that. I'd rather own than rent any day of the week. I really would. I would love it. It would be really, be really hard if I went to work every day and then I got home and I had to set up chairs to watch TV. <laughs> that would be really hard every day. I don't want to do that. 
I would rather get home where I have permanent furniture sitting in my living room that I can just go sit in. I would like to have that. So that's sort of, sort of the tension. There's a lot more nuances to it than that. But there's, that's sort of the tension that I've been through. And so, oh gosh, about uh, maybe, I forget the timeline here, so bear with me. But I don't know if I've said a year and a half, a year, eight, nine months. I don't know. But sometime in the last year or so, I began to pray, Lord, would you give us a building? And not two weeks went by. I'm walking into Starbucks, and there's a guy who owns that building. He says, hey, Chris. And honestly, I wasn't going to talk to him. I was trying to just get to the coffee bar and get out of there. And I was walking fast, you know, looking down, you know. You know what we all do? We have our phones out, looking down. We, uh, and so uh, I walk, he calls me over, and we had a quick conversation. He said, hey, uh, got this building. No, he didn't even say that. He just said, hey, we're, you guys still mobile? Like, yep. Um, if you guys could be anywhere in Memphis, where would that be? I said, uh, pfft. Maybe somewhere between Ridgeway and Perkins or something like that. It's okay. We just talked on. Come to find out later in the conversation that he and his church own this building. And that, that building's owned by Life Fellowship, a church in North Mississippi. And uh, long story short, that they came to possess that building a couple of years ago and uh, tried to plant a church there that didn't work out. And, um, and so, but back in the summer, I went and approached him again and said, hey, we're looking for a place to do a midweek service. Is there any poss- are there any possibilities for that building? And he said, yep, nothing goes on on Wednesday nights. You guys are free to use it and gave us a ridiculously low uh, uh, cost. And so we said, okay, we'll do it. And uh, Missy O'Day, who graciously hosted our youth group for a couple of years, we just, it, we, that just wasn't big enough for us. So uh, one thing led to another, and uh, we started meeting there. And, and uh, pretty much right off the bat, a few of you began to say, man, this really feels like home. I'm like, well... <laughs> It can't because another church meets here. <laughs> so this isn't our home. But, uh, but I just let it be. And then uh, around November, beginning of November, I got a call from him and he said, hey, here's the deal. Uh, Believing Church will be moving out. And um, um, really, for reasons that I'm not sure, I'm not completely aware of. But Believing Church is moving out. Uh, and by the way, one of our long 26-foot trailers we've donated to them so they can uh, transport their equipment back and forth to Paradiso where they're going to be meeting, I think, starting today. Uh, so I pray God's blessings, sincere blessings over them. Um, but he said, would you guys be interested in renting the facility? They, and they gave us a cost that, frankly, we couldn't afford. We just couldn't afford it. So we went back to him and told him, hey, um, we love the building. We, we'd love to meet there, but we can't afford the, the price you're giving us. And... Um, from that point to December 22nd or 23rd, me and David Leach and Steve Fredrickson were sitting at a table with him, and he said, here's the deal. I'm going to give it to you for this. And we said, we're all in at this amount. But uh, it's, a, it's a cost that is affordable. It's a stretch. It's going to test us. It's a, test, it's a step of faith for us. It's a tripling our month, or doubling our monthly rent, but uh, more than doubling our monthly rent, sorry, but we feel like it's a faith step that we need to take. We really do. We need to get back in the game, and uh, we, need a, we need a home base. And for the amount of square feet that is in this building, it just makes sense. Uh, we've had our realtors look around for space in other parts of the city and uh, came back at tens of thousands of dollars just for, you know, uh, 15 or 20, you know, 10 or 15,000 square feet. It's just something we weren't willing to do. And the cost that he's giving us is just, it's a blessing from God. It's a real blessing from God. But it's going to be a step of faith. 
And so if you consider yourself a member of Renewal Church, if this is your home, we need you to take that step of faith with us. We really do. We need you to take that step of faith with us. Um, so we've got, some, we've got some stuff that we've, you know, been through the last few years. Uh, I was sitting uh, at a restaurant, and these are just the kind of conversations I've had. About three weeks ago, I was sitting in a restaurant with somebody, and I just, I had mentioned the series that we were in, and he had no idea what I was talking about, which is like most of you. And, uh, and so I said, well, you know, the, per- the, the current series that we're in, he said, I'm sorry, Chris. He said, we just haven't been there in like three weeks. We have a baby who's been sick, and you know, that's a school. And the stigma in his mind, and I've heard this on a number of occasions, is that 700 kids with their germs traipse in and out of this building, and I'm not going to bring my kids to a nursery where that many kids have used it. Now, I don't know, I'm not a scientist or a biochemist or whatever that is or a rocket scientist. I can't tell you about any of that stuff, how that works, the spread of germs and all that. But I do know that that has been a growth issue for us, that stigma. Um, so that's just like one example of a number of conversations I've had over the years where people are like, you know, I think I'm just going to lay out for a few weeks and uh, wait till the flu bug passes by, which is now I've learned a year-round phenomenon, uh, the flu bug. So every time I ask somebody, where was so-and-so this week? It's like they had the stomach flu. I'm like, really, the stomach flu uh, in July? Okay, so, um, so we need, uh, but, uh, so our setup and teardown team needs a permanent rest. These guys and ladies have been working too hard for too long. I really want to fire our setup and teardown team. I really do. Um, But part of what went into this is we need an accessible location in a high-volume area. We really do. When I say need that, we really prefer that. We want to be not off the beaten path. Yes, Quince Road is right parallel to 385, and it's pretty easy to get here if you're in southeast Shelby County or East Memphis or Midtown, but at the end of the day, it's still sort of off the beaten path, and nobody just drives here on purpose unless you've got a kid that goes to this school or you, know, you want to get somewhere on Quince Road. So we want to be somewhere where there's a lot of drive-by, uh, where there's a lot of drive-by visitation. Um, I don't think there's anything unspiritual about that. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, for years, I mean, many of you have come to our church because you drove by Winchester Road and you thought, huh, I want to check that church out, and we've become pretty good friends. You've been a blessing at our church, and hopefully we've been a blessing to you. I'd like to be in a place where there's some high-volume drive-by traffic. Um, it just so happens that Perkins and Poplar is not just a high-volume neighborhood, but it's one of the busiest segments of all of Poplar Avenue, the busiest thoroughfare in Memphis. It's insane to me that we've been, that two weeks after saying finally, okay, Lord, I really would like to see us get a building. God brings this brother into my life who I've not seen in five years. And we find ourselves a year later going to have a sign that says Renewal Church on Poplar Avenue and Perkins. That's just incredible to me. Um, It's incredible. Um, We also need the headquarters I think here in Memphis. And when I say I need, I mean we really need this. We need to be within arm's reach of brokenness in Memphis. And when I say brokenness, don't just think what a lot of us are trained to think by the media. And that brokenness is inner city. That area is surrounded by brokenness. The brokenness of people who depend on affluence and the brokenness that does come with neighborhoods that see more crime and disarray and dehumanization uh, than any other, in other neighborhoods in Memphis. We're at the arm's reach of, 
uh, Bell Mead, and um, uh, an Orange Mound. I mean, we are within arm's reach of so many different, various, diverse neighborhoods. It, put its, it puts us right there in the heart of Memphis. Um, and not only that, we've had a number of conversations with mentors and people outside of our ministry that we look to as spiritual oversight. Um, and all of them, after hearing all the facts, all the details, said, guys, don't just, we don't just recommend you do this. Run. Go. Pursue this. And so we feel really validated. We feel really validated. There's been a lot. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. There's been a lot of fear that goes into this. Uh, taking steps of faith is not something I like to do. Uh, I would rather take steps of comfort. Um, but this is a step of faith. And I'm feeling a little fear. But far more than fear, I feel a lot of hope and a lot of passion for this. And so we don't just feel this is God's will, that like God's okay with this. We feel God is saying run. We really do. Um, um, we feel God's behind this. And so I want to take a couple of minutes and just talk about Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 46. I just want to make a couple of points about this uh, because at the end of the day, it's not about getting a building. It's really not. It's about Jesus. And that may sound like a cliche and sort of a spin to you, but it really is about Jesus. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But as a matter of fact, I do want to say this. Um, because of who we are becoming, a family church, a church where we want you to be known. Amy Coley, look at you. Hey, girl. Love you. Oh, there's Bryce, too. Good to see you, Bryce. Um, so um, because we're becoming a church that is all about family, that's all about knowing you and being known, like really knowing you, and I don't mean, I just mean where you're known and you're loved, we've come to realize that this context for ministry is beginning to undermine what our DNA is. We don't want to worship in a massive, cavernous room that almost forces us to spread out. We don't want that. We want to be in a place where there's intimacy. And so we're living in this tension. Our vision is not to be a megachurch. Our vision is to be a growing church. Now, here's what I mean by that. When I say megachurch, what I have in mind is two and three and 4,000 seat sanctuaries. That's not what we're going for in our church. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's bad. It's just not who we are. What we're going for is a church that helps us to be and live as a family. And so that, what that means is, is that as we grow as a church, rather than having more building, we're going to have to plant churches, start more services. We don't want a context where there are thousands of people sitting in a room in an impersonal environment. We want you to be known. And we as pastors want to know you. I am tired of meeting some of you for the first time. And you've been members here for five years. I don't like that. I want to know you. I really do. We want to know you. We want to shepherd you well. We want to love you and care for you. And we want you to be equipped for ministry so that you can love and care for one another. Because that's your call to ministry according to Ephesians chapter 4. So I want to spend a couple of minutes in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. I think a lot of people, when they read this, they think, oh, how cute. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, they ate together, and they prayed together. Man, that's just beautiful. I hope our community groups become that. That's just, that's just so sweet. But I think we look at that as sort of just sort of a, maybe an add-on to something miraculous that God was doing and leading the nations to Jesus. And I want to show you that these verses, 42 through 46, aren't just cosmetic add-on in this text. 
they are prophetic. Here's what I mean by that. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46, describes the mutual love and common relationships that the church had with one another. This, these few verses emerge from a context that is really powerful. If you remember, if you've ever read Acts chapter 2, here's what's going on. Jesus has already ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's already ascended. He told his disciples prior to ascending, he said, remain in Jerusalem and wait. The promise of the Father is going to come. The Holy Spirit. If you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, the entire Gospel of John is anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus even anticipates this at the end of John when he goes to his disciples and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Giving them, I think, a cue to what it's going to look like when the Spirit comes. Because in Acts 2, the Spirit came how? As a rushing, mighty wind. The breath of Jesus blew again. And flames of fire appeared over their heads. And they began to say something very interesting. They began to speak in different languages. And they began to say in those intelligible languages of the glories of God. They began to proclaim the glories of God. They preached the gospel. And because this happened during the Jewish feast of Pentecost, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people from around the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire, the known world, who had pilgrimaged to Jerusalem to worship at the feast of Pentecost. And as they are there, they hear this ruckus in this place of worship, maybe it was at the temple or another, play, or another person's house. We're not really sure about that, but it was an upper room. But it was within earshot of throngs of people, and they began to wonder in amazement. How is it that these Galileans, which is a way of saying these country folk, with their interesting southern accents, are speaking in languages from around the Roman Empire? How is that possible. And then Peter stood up and said these words, verse 17 and 18. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour my spirit, pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just Jews. That's the implication there. All the nations are going to see the glory of God. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Whoa. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. It's it is scandal that he said daughters. It is scandal that he said sons and daughters. Until you were an adult, and in that culture even more so a male, you weren't really considered a valid human being. And he says that the move of God is not just going to be led by impressive patriarchs. The move of God is going to be grassroots and it's going to be normal, ordinary, nameless, faceless people that are going to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. You and me. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. He's not saying that if you're old, you're only going to dream and not see visions. That's not what he's saying here. It's a poetic way of saying everybody is going to experience communion with God in a miraculous way. We're going to see visions and dream dreams, and we're going to prophesy, even on my male servants, people who weren't considered people. And my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
Whoa. Peter said, what you are hearing is happening. People who are Galileans, they are preaching the gospel in different languages. That's what Peter says is prophecy, at least in this text. They are prophesying. They are telling of the wonders of God in various languages. It's incredible what's happening here. Now look at verses 19 through 21. Check this out. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. So incredible cosmic wonders are going to take place in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus and finally the day of judgment. So this group of disciples who is preaching the gospel, there's a context for this. There is a day of judgment coming when Jesus will return. Our preaching must be urgent. It's not just about making people's lives better. It's not about the church being a hospital for sick people, even though it should be. It's about something more than that. The king will return. The king who owns this world will judge And the most urgent matter in the cosmos, in the universe, is that we become a prophetic church that preaches the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus. The same call that was on Israel in the wilderness. The same call. Renewing the world. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Now, if you fast forward to the end of this chapter, look at verse 46 or 47. And praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord, what? Added to their number day by day by day, those who were being what? Saved. So not only were they preaching the gospel to people who did not know Jesus, They were living the gospel in a prophetic way. So when Luke takes times, Luke who wrote this, this is actually Acts is part two of Luke's first gospel, the gospel of, anybody want to take a guess what that is? It's not John. It's not Matthew. And it's not Mark. Anybody want to guess what that is? You're so sheepish and scared. It's the gospel of Luke. Okay, so... um, It's the gospel of Luke. This is part two. This is the second volume of Luke's gospel. And he's writing this and he's saying this. He describes what it looks like to be the church in the middle of all this. And he says this. Look at verses 44. Verse 44. And all who believed and were together and had all, I'm sorry, all who believed were together and had all things in common. This isn't just some sweet cosmetic stuff that, that Luke adds here. Oh, and they preached the gospel, people came to Jesus, and oh, they loved each other a lot. It was so cozy. They roasted marshmallows. It was sweet. They had church services. They gathered together and read the Bible. They prayed. Yeah, 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 yeah. But let's get to the good stuff. People were saved. Luke would say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is inseparable from the good stuff. Because it's the culture of the church that was a megaphone to the gospel that they preached. And if there's anything wrong, I think, with the church, not just in Memphis, 
but in all of Western civilization, is that we talk a big talk and our walk is pitiful. We preach the gospel. We talk about things like sexual purity and we prophesy to certain broken elements of our society and those broken elements are pointing their finger back going, yeah, but your divorce rate is just as high as ours is. What about the sexual abuse that's taking place in our churches? What right do you have to preach to us when the way that you live undermines the gospel that you preach and believe in? You see, you can say the right thing, but if we aren't living it, it muffles the expression of the gospel. I'm not saying the gospel isn't powerful enough to get through that. The gospel has coexisted with hypocritical Christians for 2,000 years. That ain't going to stop until Jesus comes. But we don't have to love that reality. We don't have to live in that reality. I'm not suggesting that our church can get to a place where we don't have brokenness. We are finite. We are sinners saved by grace. You're going to do things that cause me to go, what? And I'm going to do things like maybe this sermon that caused you to go, what? We're going to bug each other. We're going to make each other angry. We're going to hurt one another. That's life under the sun, Solomon says. But we have the gospel to show us how to live a better life under the sun. And the life that he wants us to live is a life that is displayed here in Acts chapter 2. And so I just want to read that to you again with that in mind. Verses 42 through 47. Because life in the kingdom is a prophetic expression of the gospel. Look at this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These are prophetic act actions and practices. These aren't just sweet little things that we do together. These are prophetic. And what happened as they got together and read their Bibles? If, if they didn't have Bibles back then, but you get what I mean. What happened when they came together and they prayed? What happened when they came together and they broke bread? It says this in verse 47, and awe came upon every soul. I don't know about you, but man, I want to be in awe of God. I want to be in awe of God. I don't want the statement, God is awesome, to remain a bumper sticker. I want it to be my heartbeat, my pulse. We serve an awesome God. And part of the reason why so many of us struggle seeing how awesome God is because so many of God's people don't believe it. We don't live it. And it's hard to believe that when we do church in a context where so many people don't. It's hard to do that. Awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were what? Didn't say baptized right here. Were together. Did you know togetherness is a spiritual discipline? Togetherness is. And they had all things in common. I know some people that are like, you know, get nervous when they hear that word common. You mean the church practiced communism? That's not exactly what communism was, but okay if you want to believe that. Um, 
They loved one another. They weren't greedy and individualistic. This doesn't have to be an ideal. Maybe we won't live it out like they did. I mean, this is a completely different culture, a completely different time. But why not reach for this? Why not reach for this? They had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, their belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, day by day, attending the temple, the old Jewish temple that was now defunct, the believers kept attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were content. They loved being together, praising God and having favor with all the people. They had favor with all the people. The non-believing people around them, they had favor with these people. For a good part of a decade, church historians say, until persecution began to hit the church at Jerusalem. For the better part of a decade, they had favor with the people all around them. And what happened? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I am completely convinced that one of the big reasons why they had favor with people who followed a different, virtually a different religion was because they loved one another well. They were content. They weren't looking for political power in their society. And they were, by the way that they lived, a prophetic gospel witness to non-believing people. And God bless that. This is what we're going for as a church. We want to be a prophetic witness to people. Next week, my dear friend, Daniel Freeman, he's not here today, he's at work. He's a reservist. He's working today at his post. Next week, he and I together will be talking. Daniel is an elder candidate at our church. We're going to be introducing to you soon some elder candidates that we're going to be installing at our church. Daniel, an African-American brother, a friend of mine for better part of 10 years, he and I will be speaking next week on the subject of Dr. Martin Luther King and his continuing legacy. Why are we doing that at our church? It's not just because we have black people. It's because God has called us to be a prophetic church. And the wound of racism, and I know some of us are really tired and weary of that term, the wound of racism isn't going away for another three years until the next election cycle starts. If you think that this issue is going to be dead for a while until the next shooting, until the next act of injustice or violence, you got another thing coming. This is part and parcel of who we are as Americans. And so we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the continuing legacy of Dr. King. We're going to talk about what we as believers are called to do as white people and black people and a few other scattered, wonderful, lovely races in this room. We're going to talk about what God has called us to be as people, enduring with one another in love. If it's on your heart and you're a member of this church, it's got to be on my heart. That's what church is. I don't care if we don't agree. That doesn't matter. If it's on your heart, it has to be on my heart. And if it's on my heart, it's got to be on your heart. That's what church is. That's what church is. So in summation, our goal is not to be a concert. Our goal is to be a local church that in our unique city, 
with our unique traditions at play and all the tension that that brings to be a family that continues to learn to love one another. So, what do I need from you? What do we need from you? That's the wrong question. What do we need from each other? A few things. As I mentioned, we're still sponsoring RMS. We're not going away. You might be thinking, well, man, what about the drive, Chris? It's another few minutes down the road west. That might be far for me. Every church has people that drive five minutes and drive 45 minutes. I know that may be changing that. And I don't say that. I'm not seeing tough cookies. That's not what I'm saying. But that's just, what, that's just reality. I've lived in big cities where the drive was too far. I've lived in Dallas where you could drive an hour and a half to church. I've lived in Minneapolis where you can drive an hour to church. I get that. But Memphis is not a big city. <laughs> Memphis is a big town. We're a small city, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, that's who we are. Um, I know some of you are going to have to sacrifice a little bit more, a few more minutes. I do want to remind you that Sunday morning in Memphis is a racetrack. Well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe, a, maybe an empty track. There's nobody on the It is a racetrack, but there's nobody on the road. I almost die on my way to church every Sunday morning. But in Memphis, the, the streets are wide open. You're not fighting traffic. Even on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, typically, there are exceptions. Typically, it's, the traffic is very light. My dad told me the first week we did, met at Believing Church that he made it from southeast Shelby County to Perkins and Poplar in less than 15 minutes. Was, is that what you said? Yeah, less than 15 minutes. So uh, there's another little secret I want to tell you about the drive here. If you live in Cordova, Bartlett, maybe Fayette County, did you know that you can get on I-40, drive straight under that big flyover, which becomes Sam Cooper, and exit the first exit, which is Perkins? And once you make that exit, you are two minutes from our building. You're two minutes. Why do I know that? Because I live there. I moved there two years ago. I did not have this all planned out, so don't, don't accuse me of that, okay? A year and a half ago. Um, so keep that in mind. Some of you might be saying, well, this, that, that's not my neighborhood. Well, you can say that about this neighborhood. Not I don't live in this neighborhood. But the reality is, is that Memphis is a big town. And everything that happens in Memphis affects you. You can move 45 minutes away. The things that happen in Memphis affect you. They affect you. So I'm asking you with us to choose 901. I just made that up. Choose 901. Um, I think I might start a campaign called Choose 901. That's really good. That's really good. Um, I'm going to make some T-shirts, Choose 901, and bumper stickers, like round ones, you know, that are yellow. It's, anyway. Give it to my think tank. Uh, choose 901 with us. Everything that happens in Memphis affects Collierville. Everything that happens in Memphis, everything that, everything that happens in Memphis hap- affects Germantown. Everything that happens in Memphis affects Bartlett. Everything that happens in Memphis affects South Haven and Hernando. Whether you want to admit it or not, North Mississippians, it affects you. I want you to view the location that we're going to as a hub for fruitful ministry. A hub. View it that way, please. Here's what we need from you in closing. We need you to take this step of faith with us financially. I know there are those of you here who, who don't regularly give. It would be awesome if you did. It really would. I'm not going to guilt you or shame you. It would just be awesome if you did. If you consider this church your home, support your church. 
That's all we're asking. Support your church. Let it be more than a couple of bucks here and there. Support us in a way that shows you really believe in the local church, that the kingdom of God really is the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying renewal church is synonymous with the kingdom of God, but we certainly are an expression of it. And I think we're all here for a reason. This is our church for a reason. Let's, let's give like we believe that. We need you to serve. One of the struggles that we have in our church, and I will always be honest with you about our church, we have some weaknesses. Serving is one of them. We need you to serve specifically in our nurseries. If you take advantage of our nurseries as parents, you should be serving on that rotation. And I'm talking once every six weeks or so, not often. Serve. Please sign up to serve. And we need support. We need you to own this. I know there's a lot of questions. We're going to be talking those through. Feel free to email me or anyone on our staff, preferably anyone on our staff, and we'll be happy to answer those questions for you. Really, any question, any question. We're not, we have nothing to hide, nothing to hide. But we do want you to own this with us. Own this with us. If it's, if it's going to be a struggle getting there, that's okay. That's all right. There are optimists and there are pessimists. There are glass half full people and glass half empty people. That's okay. Not, no, none is better or worse than the other. It's who we are as people. There are people who struggle with change. There are people who love change. There are people who are like, man, I love that location, that building. There are other people who are like, ah, so what? That's okay. I'm not looking for an echo chamber here. So you take all the time you need for your heart to get behind this. But I do want you to start speaking and thinking positively about this. It'll help. It'll help speed up the process, you know, so... Save yourself some torture, self-torture. Um, we love you. We really do. We care for you. We want to see you become the people of God that he's called you to be. We take our responsibility seriously to lead you. And we are really, really excited about our move in on February 5th. That'll be our first Sunday there. Um, leading up to that point, we're still going to continue to meet here. Um, man, I feel like there's so much more I could say, but I probably ought to, ought to be quiet. Um, and people are nodding in uh, uh, avid approval. So, okay, so Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy. I pray, Lord God, that we would honor you not just with where we meet, but who we become as people. Shape us, form us into your holy people. We love you. We are grateful for you. We need you. And Memphis needs the church to step up. Help us, Lord. Amen.